the Old Testament and the New Testament aren't exhaustive for every known possible situation. They don't tell us what to do with the internet, right? And so what Paul models for us is, okay, with this new information, this new situation that hasn't happened before necessarily, how do we take the one gospel that's unchanging? How do we take the character of the triune God, which is unchanging, and apply it to this new situation? He models that for us, and I think if nothing else, that's what you want to help them get out of First Corinthians is, how do I reason biblically? Welcome to Help Me Teach the Bible. I'm Nancy Guthrie. Help Me Teach the Bible is a production of the Gospel Coalition, sponsored by Crossway. Crossway is a not-for-profit publisher of the ESV Bible, Christian Books and Tracts. Learn more at crossway.org. I am in Orlando, Florida, at the offices of Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, and specifically in the office of Dr. Greg Lanier. Dr. Lanier, thank you for being willing to help us teach the Bible. Yeah, and thanks for being here. So you teach here at RTS a number of courses related to New Testament exegesis and interpretation, Greek, preaching, uh, and then you're also, do I understand correctly, a part-time pastor? Yes, I'm part-time associate pastor at River Oaks Church in Lake Mary. Now, I was reading through some of the books you've published, and honestly, I'm not smart enough to be able to know how to pronounce Fair point. some of the titles of some of your books. Now, this one, which I have read, I can say its title, which is this short, simple little book you did called How We Got the Bible, right. Old and New Testament Canon and Text, a very helpful little book, especially if people are wondering, is the Bible reliable how do we make sense of it? So mm-hmm. that's a very readable book to yep. anyone and that, and in and our that's audience. For a, that's sort of for the average just congregation goer. It, it, it's a complicated topic, but I was trying to make it intelligible yeah. to and you my did. mom. You know, so. Yeah, you did. I really like that little book. But then like, I, I read another one that's in process, Corpus Christologica, a text and translation for the study of Jewish messianism and early Christology. So you got it. That's good. That sounds That one's a labor of love. Yeah. Okay. Why, why do you say so? Yeah. Uh, as I was studying Christology over the past several years, you see a lot of uh, apocryphal writings, Dead Sea Scrolls, pseudepigrapha, like First Enoch, which, by the way, is cited in Jude. Yes. Um, when people are talking about, okay, who is Jesus? Why did the early Christians come to these conclusions about whether he is the Son of Man or if he is a Messiah figure of some sort? These Jewish texts often play a role in that because you'll have messiahs mentioned in the Dead Sea Scrolls. You'll have messiahs mentioning other things. So I started just collecting them all in terms of like what I wanted to look up. And what this book is, it puts the primary text, so whether that's Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, what have you, with a translation and a brief commentary so that you could trace themes. I want to look at every single passage where a messiah is mentioned before the time of Jesus. It's actually a really hard thing to do to track all that down. So that's what that, so it's not really meant to be a layperson book is right. meant to sort of be a starting point for study of Christology or the study of Jesus. So. Well, it's interesting to me that you are writing those kind of academic books uh, in that you didn't necessarily intend to even be a seminary professor. You had a career right. in business. Yeah, when I asked my wife to marry me, that was a very different time of life. <laughs> um, so yeah, I worked in business for almost seven years, mostly in project management, consulting, mm-hmm. finance, and then in the 2010-2011 time frame, um, went to RTS Charlotte and then to England and then here. So it's been quite a, a journey since then. So yeah, a lot, of, a lot has changed. Well, we're talking today about the book First Corinthians, which is a big, long book right. with so much to cover, so many challenging sections. 
So I think we're going to dive right in. Sure. There are some books that just stand on your their own and you don't have to know a lot about what was going on around them or what's underneath it. Right. Is that the case for First Corinthians or what do we need to know that might not be immediately obvious to us when we begin reading the letter that's going to help us in getting it right sure, as we seek yeah, to teach a, it? Sure, yeah, it's a really important point. Compared to, say, Ephesians, which is pretty, I mean, it has a context, but it's pretty straightforward. It's a gospel presentation with implications. Romans kind of fits that bill. First Corinthians, maybe more so than any other of Paul's letters to churches, you could take out the pastoral epistles, you're being parachuted into essentially a, dump, a dumpster fire. <laughs> um, and it's a dumpster fire that is part of a pretty long-standing relationship that Paul has had with this particular church. And so whenever you pick up First Corinthians, you're actually you're listening into half of an ongoing conversation. You're only getting Paul's side of it, in other words, and it's a conversation that he's been having with the Corinthians and, and will continue to have for a while. And so that makes the context in terms of who they are, what are they dealing with, what are their problems, makes it all the more important because that's specifically what he's addressing in this letter. So to make any sense of it, you got to kind of get oriented to that stuff. Would you call First Corinthians a letter of correction? Yeah, I mean, and it's not particularly nice in most cases. It's not quite as uh, snarky as Galatians can be, but he is pretty much from start to finish taking them to task. And if you had to assign a theme to the letter, which can be a bit difficult to do because he's covering so many different Uh things. He's going from this issue, he's putting out this fire, then that fire. It's essentially something along the lines of the wisdom of Christ is sufficient for your holiness or for your growth in grace. It's something like that. He's trying to say, you don't need these other things. You don't need worldly wisdom. We don't need all those things. All you need is Christ, and Christ will help you correct a lot of the theological and moral hemorrhaging that's going on in the church. And so it is a letter of correction, and it's a dozen or more topics that he's just going to tick them off one by one and go through them. So And don't we, a couple times, we're signaled to what he's basing this on, that he has gotten a letter from them. Right. And he's heard reports about them, Yeah, correct? and he's written a letter already to them. So Paul arrives in Corinth on his second journey. He spends about 18 months there, and so that's in Acts 18. Leaves there, goes back to Jerusalem, back out, and when he's camping out in Ephesus for several years, he at some point writes them a letter, and he mentions that in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, I wrote you in my letter not to do this and that. And so that's what folks call sort of zero Corinthians, because we don't have that letter anymore. He's had Titus go. He's had multiple correspondences with them. And at some point, they wrote him back. He mentions in 1 Corinthians 7, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So that's another letter that's come to him. And then he's written this letter. As you get to 2 Corinthians, he mentions yet another letter, which is sort of like 1.5 Corinthians, so to speak. This is called the severe letter or the tearful letter, when he says, I didn't want to do it, but I wrote you this. I couldn't come, so I wrote you this letter. And then you have Second Corinthians. And so you're in the middle already of like five letters, uh, some from them and some from Paul. And so it's quite the complex situation that uh, we really have to roll up our sleeves to get our heads around because uh, there's a lot of back and forth. There's a lot of water under the bridge, in other words, that we're not always clued into. And it's so all we have is the letter. So you just kind of work through it. Well, help us to figure out how we would organize our teaching. It seems like you go through the letter and you can tell he's responding to something because it's right. kind of like, now about this. Yep, exactly. And sometimes now about them. that. Yeah, I mean, sometimes he's quoting, perhaps, depending on how which translation you have, sometimes they'll even put it in quotation marks. Like, now concerning what you wrote, quote, 
a man should not have oh. relations with his wife. So that may very well be an excerpt from their letter. So he clearly is signaling that. It's almost like he's got this uh, <laughs> this list of things. He's like, all right, about this one, let me do the next one, and let me just tick these off. So it makes it a bit hard to kind of structure how you want to do it. So if you were teaching it, I mean, would you just determine, like I, I read one place, it said basically that there were 11 issues. Right. I wonder if that's what you would say. And so would that mean you would do it over 11 sessions? Or, or if you... If you at your church, you're a part-time pastor at your church, Mm -hmm. how would you approach your structure for how you're going to teach through the book? In terms of sort of macro structure, I think spending maybe one lesson just giving an overview of the situation, maybe an overview of his argumentative strategy, which I'd love to talk more about, what exactly he's doing. And let's go back to the situation. Are there a couple of resources that you might point us to that help us lay out that foundation of the situation? Or or are you thinking you're just going to draw it all from the text itself? Oh, well, I mean, probably a bit of both. In terms of just general background, I like to think of it as a bit of Atlanta with Vegas mixed in, as opposed to, say, London. If, if Rome is London, old city, center of the world, so to speak, Corinth is, is sort of a relatively new up-and-coming city, lot of social movement going on, mostly new wealth, uh, not a not a big history because it was recently destroyed. And so you have a tremendous amount of, you know, lower class people making it up the ladder. You have wealth and poverty issues. You have a whole bunch of social and moral issues that come with that. You see that loud and clear in the letter. And so it profiles much like young city with a upwardly mobile population, mostly people working, mostly working class or, or merchant class folks. So it kind of feels, and so you actually see that in the letter, the reason why they are bickering at the Lord's Supper and why the poor are being left out as well. You have these upwardly mobile, newly wealthy people who are shunning them. We see that all the time today. You know, the reason why you have the issue about prostitution, about mm-hmm. sexual infidelity, you even have a raging incest problem is because it is a thoroughly pagan background city. That's what they do in Corinth. And so all those things are very much impacting the Christians in Corinth. And so you're, you're sort of parachuting into this scrappy congregation that's got a whole lot of problems because they're in this thoroughly pagan, new-ish city, pretty important city in the Roman Empire. And so uh, they are not only in the world, but they are in many respects of the world. And so Paul wants to rebuke them for that. Makes me think about our day and time Mm -hmm. that if we went a short time back in history, you know, people consider this a Christian nation. And it was certainly had a real basis in Judeo-Christian values. But it seems as though we're entering a new period of time that is more deeply secular right and that the mindsets and assumptions of people are going to become a little bit more you use the word pagan yeah or yeah certainly worldly yeah yeah we're going to be dealing with some of the issues they are of people coming out of a very worldly christless life that then have to figure out what are the implications for now embracing christ for things about my family and my sexuality and all of these issues. Yeah, you know, insofar as the big, in in many respects, more well-known letters like Romans, Galatians, Ephesians are, the heart of them is the basics of the Christian message, right? The person and work of Jesus. 
you don't really get a lot of that in First Corinthians, which doesn't make it untheological. What 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 First Corinthians is is an application of that truth, and that I think is immensely relevant today. Really helpful to us uh, because he's showing. Okay, I have this one gospel. <laughs> Look it up in Galatians, right? What he's trying to do is say it applies to every single part of your life, and uh, whether it's lawsuits with other Christians and how to interact with the judicial system, whether that is uh, what is our eternal hope and what's going to happen to my body. I just did a youth lesson a couple weeks ago on Darwinism and the Big Bang and like what's going to happen to our bodies when this is all over with and you know if I listen to my science teacher versus and so he's working out first Corinthians doesn't have a sort of Romans road in it what it has is okay this is the truth and let me apply to all the, these different issues that they are very much feeling as they are in this somewhat disoriented position of we are Christians in a non-Christian city and that yeah. couldn't be more relevant today exactly you know one way you could do it is start describing what you see in the text yeah. it's okay which city am i talking about because uh, it's going to sound oh, well, that like sounds a modern kinda, city. it sounds like portland or it sounds <laughs> like you know, austin texas okay. it sounds like what it's like no actually this is oh that's good corinth in 53 a.d and so maybe that could be a hook yeah so actually I like no okay th- this is gonna at times this is gonna feel foreign to me because okay what's going on with head covering but this the issues they're facing are exactly the same thing and the, and the underlying dynamics are exactly the mm-hmm. same that we face today so mm-hmm. all the books but the basic flow is he's going to spend the first four chapters getting at the heart of their problem which relates to ignoring the foolish foolishness of the gospel and privileging worldly wisdom privileging what they're getting from the philosophers and from what we would call mainstream media or Oprah or the New York Times today. And they have downplayed this old news about a dead Messiah. And so he says, the source of your problem is that. And in that early section, he's also saying, I'm seeing it play out in particular in factions. And I'll tell my students, and this hopefully isn't going to get me in trouble, but you know, today we have we we are in this conference, you know. We are mm-hmm. in this denomination. Well, we go to this, you mm-hmm. know. We go to. I, I, read I won't this name author, names, right? Yeah. yeah, I like this author. I like this big name figure, yeah. and, and th- this is the team I'm on. And that's exactly what was happening. We call them then. tribes. Yeah. So the Paul tribe, the Peter tribe, the Paulus tribe, and apparently the Jesus tribe. And so he specifically starts there because he sees this infatuation with everything. We are infatuated today, like big platforms, mm-hmm. rhetorical ability. Lots of followers. And so he, he says that is the symptom of this underlying issue of you've, you've missed the gospel. And so he begins with the factionalism. So that's sort of section one through four. And then he goes into mostly things related to sexuality and kind of five through seven with a side bit on uh, lawsuits. Mm-hmm. But you got divorce and remarriage. You have incest and embedded in that. You have church discipline. You have what to do if you're betrothed and not, you know, get cold feet. There's sort of different ways of taking that. So he deals with basically a big category dealing with sexual wholeness. So that's really five through seven. Eight through ten is generally related to how do we live in a pagan world? And the issue that they are facing is where do we get our meat? They weren't yet in an era where they had the meatless hamburgers, which I guess is a thing now. So they had to get, the, they had to get their meat from the idol festivals and the temples and so forth. And so that was a real issue. Well, can we do this or not? So he addresses that, and actually tremendous theological answer he mm-hmm. gives to that. More so than the symptom issue of can we eat meat, the real issue is how do we relate to our past? We've come out of, at least most of the Corinthian church, we've come out of a very dark background where we literally believe we were worshiping false gods and, and eating the meat was part of that. 
okay, now I'm washed and I'm made clean. What do I do now? And so you can take, you can apply that to any situation today. And that's what we all deal with when we come to the, come to the Lord. So even though th- that's the main thing, it has a much broader application. Mm-hmm. The next big section, which is where everyone sort of shipwrecks, <laughs> is uh, the spiritual gift section, uh-huh. 12, 13, and 14. And uh, it's complicated and it's thorny, but it's still the same basic theme. They're, they're privileging and putting a lot of value on visible shows and the ecstatic tongues versus other less from their perspective, less interesting things. So he has to get that in order and sort of have all kinds of problems in the worship service. And then he concludes from you know 15 and then the wrap up in 16 with this beautiful uh, resurrection body discussion. So that's, that's maybe a way to do it. Well, maybe that's a good structure for mm-hmm. our conversation sure, yeah. too, then to drop into each of those five sections mm-hmm. and ask the question, how does Paul apply the gospel here? Yeah. So let, let's start at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And it's this big conversation about wisdom. Right. And he makes this statement that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And he goes on to say, actually, that Christ is our wisdom. Mm-hmm. We use the word wisdom in a modern sense. Can our modern sense of wisdom is it sufficient for us to understand what he's talking about when he's talking about yeah, wisdom? I mean, it's not necessarily insufficient. What he's doing in that argument, Corinth had synagogues of Jews, but it's mostly Gentile background. This one church that's forged out of that is going to have a bit of both. Corinth is going to be mostly Gentile, but it's certainly going to have some Jews. And he says, look, here's the, here's the problem. Those who come from a Jewish background are seeking signs. What he means by that is just like in ancient Israel, they're looking for Moses or someone to do these signs, and the signs validate God. They say mm-hmm. this, is, this is God. This is why we trust him. This is why we believe in him. And he says Greeks value wisdom. And so what he means by wisdom there is the whole tradition of Plato, mm-hmm. Aristotle, Socrates, the the truly sort of sophisticated, educated life of philosophy and thinking, and that particularly that's communicated rhetorically and how and it's rhetoric. communicated, yeah. yeah. And and Paul's very well versed in this. I mean, what is you see this in particular even before he gets to Corinth when he's in Athens, he goes toe to toe with the Stoics and the Epicureans. He knows their system backwards. He even knows some of their authors. He quotes Aratus and so on, and so he knows the wisdom. From, from a Greek perspective, he knows that in and out. He's taken his Philosophy 101 class, and he's able to use that. And so he knows those who come from that background, what they value is worldly wisdom communicated in a certain way that is respectable in society, that wins likes, comments, and subscribes, so to speak, online. You have lots of followers and so on. So he says, okay, the problem is that both halves of the church are looking for the wrong thing. The Jewish background, they're seeking signs, and, and maybe maybe that perhaps relates to some of the spiritual gift stuff. So it's not 100% sure. And then you have the, the Gentiles who are privileging and, and really wanting to see a show. And he says, okay, Christ is the sign, and Christ is the wisdom. The problem is you're thinking a dead Messiah is neither. A crucified Messiah doesn't check the sign box, and it certainly doesn't look wise on worldly standards. And so that's where he starts. He says, okay, we got to invert that and correct that for, for everyone in the church. And so that's where he starts. So in some respects, it has a lot of analogs today in terms of what the hearts of our people seek after, where their minds go, where their hearts go on a day-to-day basis. I've had folks say, look, if, if God exists, I want to see something. Mm-hmm. I want to see him show up. Mm-hmm. Why don't we see miracles anymore? Mm-hmm. you got other folks say, look, Christianity is, it's it's not Nietzsche. You know, <laughs> it's, it's not Aristotle. So, so you just keep talking about Jesus. Like, where's the... 
show me the subtle philosophy, show me the self-help, and Christians can fall victim to that. That's how we end up reading bad theology and giving people platforms that shouldn't have them and so forth because we get distracted by the wrong thing. So he starts there because that is ultimately when they're seeking knowledge outside of God, outside of his self-revelation in Jesus, you're going to end up in a lot of different bad places. And, and at that point, you just pick and choose what you want to follow, and that's exactly what they've done. They say, hey, when he gets to First Corinthians 5, he says, look, you have a man who is committing incest apparently with his uh, stepmother. Not only do you not think this is a problem, you're actually boasting in this because you bought into a pagan way of thinking. This is how we show that we're on the right side of history. This is how we show <laughs> that we are progressive-minded and modern or what have you. So it's the exact same thing that we face today. So there's a tremendous amount of common ground there. Just wow. different, different issues, but same basic problem. What I find so immensely important about that, he says, look, all we need is Christ. You guys want these other things. You want signs. You want wisdom. And he says, whether you like it or not, all I have to offer you is Jesus. All I know is Christ and him crucified. And uh, that's one of two different places he summarizes what he's all about. The other places in Romans where he says, what I'm really about is is the ministry of the gospel. He wants to see the nations come to Jesus. So he's sort of about those two things. And so he says, we have what we need. The other thing I would mention if, if I were doing a kind of intro discussion that I think will then lay the foundation for the rest is given that Paul is correcting specific problems they have, I think it's really useful to give them a very simple way to track what he does when he's trying to correct them. Problem with 1 Corinthians in modern-day discussions, and whether it's head coverings, whether it's tongues, whether it's divorce and remarriage, is a lot of folks say that was all then. Mm -hmm. Anything he has to say about sex, marriage, what you eat, all that's just... 53 A.D., 55 A.D., Corinth, none of it really has any relevance today, except for chapter 13 because we read that at weddings, <laughs> right? So on the one hand, I don't want to fall by, by exhorting folks to take seriously the context. The error would be that the local situation mm -hmm. at Corinth is all that matters, mm -hmm. and this is simply just a description of some things that happen, and let's move on. And so what I, what I try to say is, look, there's three basic things you need to keep in mind with every one of these issues he deals with. And I'll start with the third one. The third one is, what is the local situation? For instance, it's specifically, I follow Peter, I follow Apollos. Those divisions. I follow Paul. That's the division. Those things are on the ground, real issues that are not repeated. It's like, I'm assuming we don't have that in my church, right? <laughs> At least some of those things. So that's the historical situation. And a lot of folks just want to leave it there. But that's not what Paul does. If you look at every single one of them, there's two steps he takes. The first step, he establishes a theological grounds for what he's going to say. It's fascinating. You look at every single one of them, and hmm. it's something about God. It's something about Jesus. Many of them, it's a quotation of the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And so he'll go to Adam and Eve for dealing with sort of man, woman, head coverings, that kind of stuff. He goes to Deuteronomy for how do you deal with a guy in your church who's in a flagrant situation of sin. Uh, he'll go to Numbers and Israel in the wilderness and the baptism of Moses and the whole story of the serpents and all that kind of stuff to explain what to do with pagan offerings to idols. So at each step along the way, he always goes to a theological point. He says, this is why I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. That's where we can go and say that principle isn't just 53 AD. That is 2019, 2020, 2021. Um, because he's arguing from Scripture. He's arguing from the character of God. He's not just winging it to mm -hmm. address a particular situation. 
The middle step is what does he do with that principle? So if he says, okay, because God is X, because Christ has risen from the grave, mm-hmm. because Christ is our Passover lamb, therefore purge the leaven from among you. And because you got this dumpster fire issue, let me tell you what to do. And he gives them instructions. That middle category, I think, is where we're, we're, exor- we're using our wisdom to say, okay, what part of that can we model ourselves after? What part of that is for us to do? And many times it may be. It's like we should, we should do the same. Sometimes it, we might draw more principles from it. Mm-hmm. But that, I think that three-step process really simplifies what's the theology, how is he applying it, and then what's the concrete situation. That helps you kind of figure out how to navigate through each. So with each of these situations, I'm wanting to ask, what does he appeal to right. and determine how he's going we to can go tell us how to live? And yeah. flesh that out. And what I think is so helpful about that, insofar as there's a tremendous urge to say none of it's relevant for us. It's just what happened back then. The opposite extreme is 100% of it is word for word relevant today. Therefore, everyone must wear a head covering in church or you're not a Christian, right? Mm-hmm. Because we have to implement this literally all the time. And that's not generally a very safe place either. Well, this is where you're going to help us. So we're trying to navigate some place that's mm-hmm. in between because there are things that are absolutely applicable today, but there are some things that are, that was, that was a specific situation, right? And so giving at least that grid can help you have a healthier conversation versus just picking. The thing that's so cool about 1 Corinthians, it shows us Paul doing that. It shows him a bunch of fire drills pop up and he says, okay, let me think what in my theology, in my reading of the Old Testament, which is mostly what he had at that point, mm-hmm. in my understanding of the work of Jesus, how do I apply that to this situation? And that's Yeah, so what did the Old Testament the say? And then what, does, what difference does the life, death, and resurrection of right. Jesus make in this? And let me apply that to this new situation. Because the Old Testament may not have spoken. And what's, when we get to divorce and remarriage, if we get there, he actually draws a distinction. What Christ explicitly said and then what I'm building on. The Old Testament and the New Testament aren't exhaustive for every known possible situation. They don't tell us what to do with the Internet, right? Mm-hmm. And so what Paul models for us is, okay, with this new information, this new situation that hasn't happened before necessarily, how do we take the one gospel that's unchanging? How do we take the character of the triune God, which is unchanging, and apply it to this new situation? He models that for us, and I think if nothing else, that's what you want to help them get out of First mm-hmm. Corinthians is, how do I reason biblically? All right, so we talked a little bit about the wisdom of God in that first little section. How about if we jump to chapters 5 through, would you go through 7? Yeah, generally 5 through 7 are kind of grouped. It's not... Yeah, it's about sexual immorality. It's not all uniform. Now, you recently taught on this at your church, didn't you? I did, yeah, uh, for about 25 weeks. We 25 yeah. weeks in what in chapters just five? No, 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 no. no. Uh, it was the entirety of gender and sexuality. Okay. Um, this is an issue for today, isn't it? I'm thinking about a couple of conversations I had recently, and you can tell me whether or not you think those relate. Paul is training us to make wise decisions yeah, in regard to, to these it, matters. Yeah. Like I, I talked to one person who talked about how they had someone in their church who w- had been transgender mm-hmm. and came to Christ, but had had surgery, and they mm-hmm. had to figure out how to help that person figure out what's it going to look like to go forward right. as a believer. Or another person I talked to, a gay couple had come to Christ, they have a child, mm-hmm. and they had to figure out how to tell do do? yeah these folks to live out 
this newfound identity in Christ. So this may seem very far away from us, but it seems to me that maybe Paul is training us for how to apply biblical wisdom to even those kind of situations that are very modern. Yeah. Paul was certainly familiar with the the notion of same sex not only attraction and, and affection and so forth but also physical relationships emotional relationships and so he's he's even in first Corinthians seven he signals that and uh, and elsewhere many of us would be scandalized if we were at Corinth uh, in Paul's day in terms of their pottery would have had erotic actions depicted on it and so like pass me the water jug and you see mm. you see some profane things so uh, it's actually not all that unfamiliar even though Paul is only giving us a few examples to you know one of them being uh, this man who has his father's wife uh, you know, okay maybe uh, incest is not something that is a social value right now but there are similar kinds of things. Uh, I mean, the challenge is, is that three-step process I mentioned in terms of theological grounds, how he applies them, and then what the historical situation is. They're all interwoven. Uh, interwoven. It's not like he gives us, he's not like, okay, let me give you the first three. You know, it's not like we, we would do it in a sixth-grade paper. But uh, generally speaking, they, they become fairly clear. So if you just look at 1 Corinthians 5, the concrete situation is, it's actually reported there is sexual immorality among you. A kind not even tolerated among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. So the specific situation is this issue of incest. And of course you may say, well, we don't have incest in my church, therefore we can move on. But that's not that would be missing his point. The point is, what is he going to do with this? Throughout the passage, a few things he points to. First, in verse 4, he says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and with the power of our Lord Jesus. So something about their congregation something about the christian church is corporately in the name of jesus it's sanct it's set apart to be in him which by the way is a mind-blowing concept just in its own right so that's one thing he goes to second thing he goes through in verse six do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump cleanse out the old leaven he said okay and this is interesting why so that the cleansing out the leaven that goes back to the old testament when are they not supposed to eat leaven just pop quiz. They still do it today in the Jewish Leading church. up to a particular feast yeah, and, or festival. Yeah, and in particular Passover. Yeah. And that's exactly where he goes. He says, all right, the Old Testament principle is leaven. Leaven works its way through the whole lump. He says, that's why you got to symbolically get rid of leaven. He says, okay, here's why. Christ is our Passover lamb. So he fuses the entirety of the book of Exodus and all of the principles about purity in the community mm-hmm. and why you need to get rid of leaven because you're now going to you know, celebrate God making you consecrated to himself. He says, now that's Christ. Christ is our Passover lamb. That's what he hangs his hat on. And then finally he goes down in verse 12, it, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Because God judges those outside. And then he quotes Deuteronomy, purge the evil person from among you. So those would be kind of the three things he hangs his hat on. We are consecrated in the Lord. Christ is our Passover, therefore the whole thing about purity and leavening of the lump and I need to get rid of the leaven, that is now Christologized, so mm. to speak. It's It's been totally transformed in Jesus, and then he lands with Deuteronomy. It's fascinating. So basically his point is the people of God should be a holy, consecrated people. And that, by the way, strikes against a lot of modern sort of broadly evangelical thinking, which is, hey, we're just a bunch of mess. Like, okay, and once in us, I get that we're all sinners. But actually that's not Paul's argument at all. His argument is, no, we are to be consecrated because the Passover has all, has happened. The real Passover has happened. That's his grounds. 
the situation is this man in sin, and so what is his application? Where he says, all right, uh, let him who has done this be removed from you. And then he says, you know, when you gather, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Um, verse 9, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. He says, not those of the world. Because, mm-hmm. again, God's going to take care of them. This seems like a very important principle yeah. to make clear. Yeah, exactly. He says, not those of the world. And that's why the Passover principle is so key. And Maybe you can come mm-hmm. back to that. He says, look, I'm not saying you got to get away from and shun your neighbor who you know you know, has sexual problems. He says, look, I'm not trying to say separate yourself from the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy or idolaters. If, 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 then you would have nowhere to go. But he's saying, I, I'm writing you not to associate with someone who bears the name of brother. That is, they say, I'm a Christian and we're celebrating the fact that I'm in this licentious sexual relationship. <laughs> I'm a thief. I'm a swindler. Someone who bears the name of brother who boasts in that don't associate with that person if they are sort of willfully in this life of sin. So Paul almost sort of anticipates what we're all going to say, right? Well, who are you to judge, Paul? Why don't you throw the first stone, right? <laughs> yeah. He says, okay, no, let me just throw that on its head. He says, look, we're supposed to judge or adjudicate. It's hard to translate that word. We're supposed to exercise discernment over those inside. we gotta, we got to watch our house. I'm not worried about the outside world. God's going to judge them. So it's interesting flow. He says, look, the people of God are to be whole. We are to be consecrated to God because of Christ, our Passover lamb. He says, all right, so if you have someone who is boasting about sexual morality, who's who's not even, in other words, who's not repentantly grieving it, but who's flaunting it, he says that cannot be in the church. Yeah. This is so timely also in the broader church, and we could even say broader evangelical church, mm-hmm. some who would say that some matters of sexuality, certainly living in a homosexual relationships, some would say that that is an option for a believer, would still call themselves Christians. It's saying the world's going to be the world, mm-hmm. but Paul's concerned how people who go by the name of Christ right. are living, and he's pretty adamant right. that they should be thrown out and consider them outsiders. We are a people being consecrated out from the world okay so that's what the passover is about and as that people we are to purge the worldly elements from among us and that's what the whole leaven symbolism is about and so i mean is that an easy truth no but he seems fairly fairly clear on that what's interesting is that approaching it this way helps you pull out of the weeds of well this is paul at a certain point Mm -hmm. in time and and they didn't understand desires and or whatever the issue is they don't understand the way we do because Mm -hmm. we're enlightened modern people he says no actually my argument isn't personal preference it isn't cultural it isn't because i'm afraid of things it's because of the character of god and what god has done with Mm -hmm. his people and the work of jesus so that's where he goes and i don't think most folks want to cross the rubicon of saying the work of Christ itself is no longer relevant. Most folks in the sort of broadly orthodox line of Christianity aren't ready to kind of cross that. And that's, but that's exactly where he hangs his argument. So that uh, it's, it's not easy and it requires patience and so forth, but that's where he goes. Let's uh, go to chapter eight. All right. About yeah. food offered to idols. Mm-hmm. So also known as, can I drink? Okay. Uh, I was as a, ask. as a RUF or crusade <laughs> staffer uh, or crew staffer. <laughs> I give my students a hard time because that's like, okay, I know what you all just want to know is can you drink or not? And I don't well, mean to make, I mean, that's a serious <laughs> issue, but. It, Absolutely. Uh, what is the modern day corollary to food offered to idols or what are some of them that you can think of? That's a good question. Um, the, the reason why that was an issue is in Paul's day at Corinth and most of the 
you know, Roman cities. Meat would have been expensive, would have been generally harder to come by than grain and so forth and vegetables. And so because their entire sacrificial system and the gods they worshipped, which you see mentioned in mul- you know, multiple times in the New Testament, whether it's Artemis of the Ephesians or Zeus and so forth, they operated via sacrifices to appease the gods. And so what they did is they would sacrifice the meat to pacify Apollos. Or, and because they didn't want to waste the food, uh, you know, the priests would get their share and then they would sell the rest. For a Christian coming out of that background where for their Thanksgiving feast, their equivalent of that, they're going to go up to the Artemis temple and they're going to get the meat that they, whether they believed in it or not, they they were still participating in this. Okay, mm-hmm. this is offered up to placate the the gods. The Gentile background converts to the Corinthian church. That's what they would have been doing from a kid, you know, from the time they were a kid. And so it's a real issue of conscience for them. Can I associate with that formal way of life or not? Uh, or would that defile me as a Christian? Many things can fit into that. Uh, take, take the mission field, for mm-hmm. instance, uh, within the broadly Muslim out, you know, sort of the 1040 window. Anyone who's a missionary in the Muslim world, a constant thing they deal with as the relatively small number of Muslims convert to Christianity is, okay, how do I relate to the mosque now? To what degree would participating in aid post-Ramadan feast, to what degree would that sacrifice Christian convictions? I mean, even even as an American, you know, or some people at our church have Muslim neighbors, they get invited to a breaking of the Ramadan fast dinner. Can we do that or not? Would that be participating in false religion? So that's one example. You know, going out to bars, I had a, a buddy of mine in college who was adamant that Christians still needed to go drink heavily at bars for missions purposes. We still need to go and do that kind of stuff to show that we're not weird and to meet people on their own turf and so forth. And many of us were like, that's insane. <laughs> it's not the drinking that's the issue, but associating with a certain pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, Let me ask you about this one. Would this be a corollary? What are you going to do with money that comes to your ministry that may be came from, gam- say, gambling. Mm. Would that be a corollary? You mean if someone gambled, gambled and then, and then gave it or something? Yeah. Oh, let's say someone used to be big into gambling. Okay. They come to Jesus. Okay, to what degree? Regardless of your stance on the legitimacy of gambling, mm-hmm. which is a different, it's, a, it's an important but different issue, something like dancing and cards, right? Mm-hmm. To what degree can they associate with that? formal way of life. And so that's probably more the parallel. Okay. Or any sort of addictive lifestyle could, could fit the bill there. And so it's those kinds of things that I think we can make this application from. And so it's interesting, and this passage is particularly chapter, uh, well, both 8 and 10 just have some of the most mind-blowing theology that he has. With respect to food offered to idols, his answer goes back to the Shema, that the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and it's there in verse 6. He says, For us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And he also says in verse 4, there is no God but one. All of that is actually just bedrock Old Testament theology of the oneness of God. The fascinating thing is that he, he has sort of transfigured it around Jesus. He sort of crammed Jesus into the Shema, this because the, sh- the Shema is uh, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So you got Lord, you got God, and you got one. And he takes those words and he sort of 
parses them out between father and son. And so this is a very famous passage in mm-hmm. New Testament theology where the uh, inclusion of Jesus in the one true God is just sort of very clear. And the fact that he uses the Old Testament Shema, the Deuteronomy 6.4, to do it is mind-blowing. But he goes back and he says, okay, when we deal with issues of food offered idols or even ex- abstract from that, your past and past habits, past things you were involved in, what he goes back to is the character of God, that God is the one who is the source of all existence. And his particular application then is idols are fake. Food itself is just food. It doesn't make us any further away from God or any closer to God. He says we're no worse off if we eat. We're no better off if we do because God is the Lord of over all this stuff. God slash the Father, Son, Holy Spirit they're the source of all existence. It's all theirs. And so whether you eat or not is is not ultimately the fact that the food was sacrificed to Apollo. God knows Apollo doesn't exist because God created all things, right? And so that's his argument. So what is his application? He says it's not the thing that's going to make you closer to God or not close to God. It's how you do it with respect to your own conscience and other people's conscience. That's where he goes with it. So you got, again, to put it in the grid, the local issue, sort of the far right of my grid as I mm-hmm. do it visually in front of you, mm-hmm. the, the issue is food sacrificed idols. Mm-hmm. The theology is the character and oneness of God as revealed in Jesus. And the application is, in the eyes of God, you need to follow your conscience. And in particular, in these in First Corinthians 8 and 10, you need to guard the conscience of the other person who may be confused mm-hmm. about the character of God that's his point. And what's so interesting about this, he says, all right, look, whether you eat this food or not, it doesn't really matter. But if someone could confuse that as if you are a Christian sanctioning the worship of Apollo, that's when it would be a problem. That's where he goes. If someone else's conscience would think that to be a Christian equals we sacrifice to Zeus, then that is the problem because there's one true God. And so if you took that to, and this is actually when, when someone asked me what to do with the Muslim feast, I said, look, your neighbor knows you're a Christian. You've invited them to our stuff, and they've come. Like, they know where you stand. They know you don't worship Allah, at least not the way. Like, we know, I mean, good principled Muslims know that we don't believe in the same thing, regardless of what the news says, that there's all they're all the same God. A good, consistent Muslim realizes there's a big difference in how we worship and how they worship and what we believe. And so they know that that's where you stand. Uh, they know that you you don't just think Jesus is a messenger. You think he's the living God. Mm-hmm. There's no confusion about that. And so I th- you know, so it's up to you and your conscience to say, what I'm doing is going to show love to them as my neighbor, to go and uh, have fellowship with them over something that's important to them, and I'm, but I'm not doing anything to show that I actually think it's real worship. And as long as they get that, then, I, then, then, then you've according got some to freedom. First, then you have some freedom of conscience. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, however, they think that you're actually offering sacrifices mm-hmm. to you know Allah in the name of Muhammad and then you got a problem and mm-hmm. so that, then you would avoid that so I think you can sort of apply that thought process to a lot of these different issues uh, if someone thinks that to be a Christian is to gamble then mm-hmm. then that would be or that gambling somehow relates to your relationship with God then that mm-hmm. would if you if you're sending that message then that's a problem because then you could hurt the conscience of others so I think that's kind of where he goes with this and so you can it takes some time it mm-hmm. takes some thought it's not always straightforward mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of how you apply it to the thorny things that mm-hmm. pop up in life. But that's the basic impulse that comes from a passage mm-hmm. like that. 
when we get into chapter 10, mm-hmm. are we still talking about the same issue and some of the same argument when he says all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful? All things are lawful, but not all things build up. And he talks about doing everything to the glory of God. Yeah, exactly. So 8, 9, and 10 are sort of this one big argument. 9 is a bit odd because it's, it seems to be this digression about Paul defending his apostolic credentials. Mm-hmm. But he, he's basically, what he's doing in 9 is saying, even I, as an apostle, have liberty of conscience to marry or not marry, uh, to work or not, to, to take pay for my work mm-hmm. or not. So, so it, it does fit. It sometimes feels like a bit of a digression, mm-hmm. but it, it actually fits with the flow. And so in chapter 10, he really, he, he definitely is resuming the argument in chapter 8. And so some of the key things, you know, he says, flee from idolatry, verse 14. He says, when you actually religiously participate in a pagan sacrifice that makes it different he says we can't do that because it 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 means you're becoming sort of one with the deity and Mm -hmm. and by contrast that's what we do in our own Mm -hmm. lord's supper is we're participating so that's the caution and so he says look at the end of the day verse 20 i imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to god Uh, and i don't want you to be participants with demons so that's the the sort of bumper in the bowling alley if, if it's going to require you to do that in terms of eating the meat then don't that we draw the line there you can't drink the cup of the lord and the cup of demons you can't mix right and so in verse 23 then depending on who you read some argue and like esv for instance puts it in quotation marks and so when he says all things are lawful and then uh, he says it again that that could be maybe a quotation of mm-hmm. them and mm-hmm. that's one theory at least of course we don't have his punctuation mm-hmm. um but it seems to make some sense so maybe they're saying yes aren't all things lawful we've achieved this worldly standing he even he critiques himself you already think you're kings you already think that you've arrived and so maybe they're the ones saying look we can do anything we want he says okay on the one hand some of that's true because he's already established like yeah you do have liberty of conscience but not all things are helpful Mm -hmm. and not all things build up so the whole thrust is we have liberty of conscience because of the work of christ because christ is the one true god over all things and he has delivered us from the powers of darkness but what restrains our liberty is love for someone else and our own conscience so. And whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory right. of God. And then, but the next verse, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. So that even goes back, if you remember back to the chapter one, two, three stuff where he says, our behavior needs to be cognizant of people from these different backgrounds, how they think about things. And it's different uh, for both, but we're trying to not diminish the gospel in front of the watchful eyes of the world, basically. Mm-hmm. The whole thrust is what you do in front of other people who are watching. Uh, matters. And he's trying to give some theological ways to think through that. What are the restraints on our Christian liberties? How do we think through that? How does it impact Um, my brother? Yeah. How does it impact what I'm communicating about belonging to Jesus Christ? We've covered a lot of important things, Mm -hmm. but we haven't even nearly hit the hard stuff. So (laughs) here's what we're going to do. We're going to bring this conversation to a close, and then we'll open up in a part two of our conversation about 1 Corinthians. Are you game for that? Sounds great. All right. Well, you've been listening to Help Me Teach the Bible, a production of the Gospel Coalition sponsored by Crossway. Crossway is a not-for-profit publisher of the ESV Bible, Christian Books and Tracts. Learn more about Crossway's gospel-centered resources at crossway.org.